This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. It appears COVID-19 is gaining the upper hand again here in Ontario, fueled by the newest and most transmissible variant to date, Omicron. COVID numbers are rising fast. The positivity rate is also climbing. And at this stage, Omicron accounts for the bulk of all new cases in our province. Omicron, in fact, is now the dominant strain here in Ontario. Dr. Anthony Ladelfa is the lead infectious diseases physician at Oak Valley Health. He joins us now on the feed. Dr. Ladelfa, health officials are saying at this point, it's not a question of if, rather when the Omicron variant will come to our community. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great point. And We know from our experience in other countries and what we're seeing locally here in Ontario and in Canada, it does seem to spread quite rapidly once it establishes itself in a new area. And based on how quickly the numbers have increased in every country where it's been around, we do see that it quickly becomes the dominant strain, meaning that it's able to outcompete the Delta variant, which was previously essentially 100% of the COVID cases in Canada and Ontario, which just speaks to how much more transmissible, how much more contagious this variant is, owing to a large number of new mutations that we see on various parts of the virus. And that's what's guiding a lot of our new policies, our new principles, the way we're approaching our infection control practices, taking into account that this is now a different ballgame with rapidly rising cases, needing to do what we can as fast as possible to not let it get to a point where it starts to spread uh, in much larger numbers. Because statistically speaking, there will be some proportion of people who will have a severe infection. And ultimately, it's the impact that it has not just on an individual person, but when they spread it to multiple people, the people that they spread it to could then have a severe infection potentially. And once again, we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system. We obviously don't want to have any severe outcomes. We don't want to have any uh, increased deaths or ICU admissions or hospitalizations from this infection. And so now that we're seeing the cases rise so quickly, I think this is a time to start to enact more measures to try and prevent uh, more out-of-control spread from happening. Let's talk about the importance of vaccinations. How effective are they? So that would be shot one and shot two, and a lot of people are now lined up for the booster shot. How effective are they in preventing the transmission of the disease and or uh, avoiding a worst-case scenario, which is hospitalization, ICU, and of course the very worst situation would be death? Yeah, it's a a really good question. And we know still that being vaccinated does definitely reduce severe infection. And that's sort of the most important benefit that we're seeing from vaccinations by and far. Um, Looking in Ontario's data, when we look at the actual proportions of patients who are requiring hospitalizations and ICU, it's certainly many fold higher in those who are unvaccinated. Now, the the 
importance of reducing the number of cases as well, we do actually see that if you look at the proportion of the population, so remember that the vaccinated individuals make up now roughly 80% of the total population. So when we see a certain number of cases reported every day, realize that the vaccinated makes up 80% of the population. Meanwhile, the unvaccinated makes up 20%. So even if you happen to see an equal number of cases among vaccinated or unvaccinated, when you take the proportion of that, it still definitely looks like proportionally the unvaccinated make up a higher case number per day, which does show us indirectly that being vaccinated is preventing a large number of infections from still happening. So while vaccination is not going to be a 100% prevention, uh, especially as the virus continues to mutate and create new variants, certainly there is some protection against transmission, against getting the virus, but most importantly, those who are getting infected who are fully vaccinated by and far have a much more mild case. Now with Omicron, it's another bit of a different story because some early data is suggesting that the antibody levels from three doses uh, seems to be the required amount now to provide that additional protection compared to the levels from two doses. And this is why getting that booster dose as soon as you're eligible is very, very important. We are seeing again from other countries that have had a few more weeks of experience with Omicron that it does seem that the protection from three doses does seem to be superior than two doses. There is still some benefit, certainly, and we are still seeing that unvaccinated are getting more of the brunt of new cases. However, three doses does seem to be faring better than two doses for Omicron, much more so than, than with Delta. So, Dr. Ladelpha, how do we protect those who are unvaccinated because they're not eligible? So that is the group under five years of age. How do we protect them? Yeah, and that's, that's a very big concern from our perspective as well, because like you mentioned, they just simply cannot receive a vaccination dose yet. And in that case, we treat it like making sure that the community around them is as protected as possible and taking all the right precautions. So at home, making sure that everyone in the household who is eligible for vaccination, them being vaccinated will hopefully reduce their chances of getting it within their household and therefore spreading it within the household. Uh, likewise, if they participate in things like daycare or school, Again, making sure that they're taking necessary precautions, they're avoiding large gatherings, um, you know, doing what we can to be mindful of their different exposures, and things like you know, masking, social distancing, um, again, hand sanitizing for those around them just to prevent transmission of infection to them. That's the best that we can do with the available tools. It's quite similar to wave one back in 2020, where we did not have vaccination available to anyone. And it was all those other public health measures that were so crucial to prevent spread is the same messaging now for, for those who cannot be vaccinated currently. And I hearken back to wave one and beyond when we also had to deal with lockdowns and, and such. At this point in our battle against COVID-19, it appears to me that even if massive restrictions are leveled by the government getting closer to Christmas, it would be... It, impossible to enforce. So it means that 
people have to be responsible for their own actions and reactions to this spike in in cases and the power of Omicron. Absolutely. And and that's where a lot of the recommendations um, can only go so far as the, those who are adhering to them or, or listening to them. And this is where your individual or your personal understanding of your risk, those around you, trying not to enforce very draconian measures, yet trying to keep everyone as safe as possible. I think that's where we need to try and strike the balance because, as you mentioned, enforcing very uh, rash or very large-scale measures often doesn't get very well received, and that's understandable. But having people understand why certain measures are higher risk than others, having people take it upon themselves to, you know, reduce their the size of their gatherings, reduce or eliminate any non-essential in-person events or meetings, uh, you know, things that are just deemed not essential, you know, knowing that now maybe isn't the right time for that, postponing certain get-togethers or events. These are all things that are easy pieces to do that could avoid unnecessary transmissions. Because it's those, it's those little transmission events that can then lead to significant spread where we have, you know, a strain of virus where potentially one person can infect sometimes three, four, five, up to 10 people with one transmission event, depending on how large it is. This is where all these measures are strongly recommended and shy of having to enforce them, having people take it upon themselves to realize that there are significant public health implications for a lot of these actions, like having larger scale holiday parties, being unmasked in the same indoor setting as other people, especially if you're not sure of their vaccination status, um, not taking those social distancing measures, all these other public health measures on top of vaccination. These are where we try to recommend things as much as possible and you know, hope that people can adhere to them as best as possible, make the best decisions for not just themselves, but protecting those around them as well. Dr. Ladelfoot, it was just three weeks ago that the WHO sounded the alarm about Omicron. Was it too little, too late? And what was your first reaction? What was your reaction as the lead infectious diseases physician at Oak Valley Health? What strategy did you enact at that point? Yeah, I think it's, Whenever there is a new announcement like that from the WHO, obviously it it garners a lot of attention initially. And in the background of this, there were actually a few other variants of interest, variants of concern that were initially brought up by the WHO. However, they ended up not uh, spreading rampantly throughout the world and, and Delta was actually able to overtake them. So we went into this new announcement knowing that it could really go either way at first because, again, there had been other variants of concern prior to that that didn't really spread like that. When we started to see the data coming out primarily from the the Southern African countries showing very high rates of spread, that's, I think, where the first real warning bells went off that this could be brewing something significant. Obviously, it was very early data uh, we we were cognizant that the vaccination rates in South Africa were around 25%. Um, it was primarily infecting younger people who may have had a lot more high-risk contact. So this was something to keep a close eye on. Once we realized that they were finding this variant in other countries, 
and in people who had traveled to countries that were not necessarily in Southern Africa, it made us realize that this has probably been circulating for longer than we realized and in other countries than the few that were put on the initial warning list. And so at Oak Valley Health, we got together as a team and we had decided that all international travel was going to be deemed high risk because we knew it was a matter of time before we would realize that this variant was probably going to be identified in a number of countries. And sure enough, within about three or four days, we saw it was popping up in a number of different countries. And so being cognizant initially that international travel anywhere was going to be seen as high risk, whether it was because you were in a country with cases of this Omicron variant or the airplane or the airport that you used to travel to and from that country were seen as much higher risk than they were previously. And as we're getting more data, and now that we're certainly seeing lots of community transmission, very rapid community transmission, we're looking into escalating uh, more of our policies to make sure that we are able to appropriately screen people who may have been exposed, uh, who may have had some of this higher risk activity or travel, and to reduce the chances of uh, any variant, whether it's Delta or now Omicron, from coming into the uh, to the hospital institutions. And looking forward, depending on the actual ability of this Omicron variant to cause spread in somewhere like a hospital will be interesting to see where we have nearly a 100% vaccination rate among our staff. We're strongly enforcing vaccination among our visitors. And so to see what the impact in a very highly vaccinated institution uh, where we have very good uh, infection control measures, if we can see that our current measures are holding up and we're not seeing uh, large outbreaks, um, then we'll continue to, to watch closely. However, all these alarm bells are, are sounding for a reason because we've seen how one case can rapidly spread. And so this is why we're looking to see if we need to uh, constantly change any of our recommendations uh, to do what we can to protect not only uh, the patients, but the visitors, our staff members, and everyone uh, at the institution. In short and in closing, can Omicron be defeated? Yes. I think with a very strong vaccination schedule, making sure everyone who gets their boosters uh, as soon as they're eligible making sure we follow all the right public health measures, uh, not just for ourselves, but for those around us as well. Uh, we can certainly curb the number of cases. We can stop the spread from being as quick as it's going, certainly reducing the severe infections, um, and we keep it at in check, essentially. We're quite cognizant that respiratory viruses like this uh, may not be fully, fully eradicated, but we do want to make sure we're able to keep it in check and keep everyone around us as safe as possible. And we think that with our public health measures uh, tightening up a little bit and making sure we can get as many people fully vaccinated as possible, we can achieve that. Dr. Anthony Ladelfa, lead infectious diseases physician at Oak Valley Health, which is, by the way, a health unit that includes Markham Stovall Hospital and Uxbridge Hospital. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom. Much appreciated. Thank you very much.
Coming up on the feed, the top weather stories of 2021, the benefits of learning a second language, and pink cars are back. Those stories just ahead. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Weather. A look back at 2021 and what's in store as winter approaches. Here's Kevin Frankish. Dave Phillips, Environment Canada. My gosh, we go back a long way. And I remember in the day when Environment Canada, you know, one thing they didn't like doing was they didn't like releasing any forecast that was more than 48 hours from now. And so many things have changed since then. We have become weather consumers much more, and I think that you have helped spearhead that with Environment Canada. Well, I, thank you. I don't know whether that's a compliment or not, <laughs> Devin, but I, you're right. I mean, here is a country where we talk about the weather like you know, going out of style. I mean, 26 years ago, I began this uh, this project called the Top 10 Weather Stories, and because I felt that, well, you know, at the end of the year, people talk about the top news stories, the top sports stories, the top Hollywood stories. Well, weather is, is king and queen in Canada, so why not review some yeah. of the hardship and misery and misfortune that Canadians have, have fallen to because of the of the weather? So it's become kind of popular. It's like, you know, what are the chances of a white Christmas, and what were the top 10 stories this year to, to kind of review and and to remember. And, and often people don't recall. They said, was that this year? You know, I said, yeah, it was last February. So it was like, like an eon ago. But So it's become a big one. But, but also, uh, I think, Kevin, what's sort of interesting is that people want to be part of this list. And uh, through the years, I mean, it got from really a kind of quiet, tame kind of stories to now, my gosh, you ran out of superlatives is describing the kind of uh, weather that we've had. And, and, and people, uh, people want to be part of it they want i think they want others to you know to share the the kind of misfortune that they've had by by saying you know we saw and we survived and uh, so i like it's an interesting sort of comment on on sort of the sociological implications of this list and uh, and yet it's very subjective it just i get together with myself and i look at a hundred weather stories that occurred this year and i try to rank them from one number one to number ten and and limit it to only ten stories now, the headlines this year, and there are many of them for this year. So, finish this sentence for me, Dave. 2021 in weather was... Mm. Oh, it was the most expensive, mm-hmm. the most destructive, mm-hmm. and the deadliest year in Canadian history. In Canadian I mean, history, this past year, the past 365 days. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, and the other thing that is, we talk about misfortune is the people in British Columbia took five of the top uh, uh, ten positions. I mean, there's a place you wouldn't want to be. I mean, beautiful British Columbia is not yeah. looking so beautiful anymore. And, um, and they've been hammered um, by every season. Um, and in terms of the, of the, the heat under that dome, um, the intense drought, um, and then the forest fires, and then to follow it up in the fall with, with incredible, humongous amounts of rain and floods. I mean, it was just punished and pulverized uh, this year with 
with wild and extreme kind of weather. It's, it's affected the economy, affected people's lives. Can you imagine? We normally, in the past, would have had a royal commission set up, but two people died from uh, from the weather. Yeah. This year, nearly 600 British Columbians died because of the heat wave, and add to that 200 in Alberta. I mean, it was clearly... Uh, this, and, you know, I, I think from the top three stories would have been, I think, in the top ten of world stories weather-wise, in terms of the hurricanes and floods and, and drought that occurred elsewhere. We took no backseat to anybody. It was, you know, we often say that we get lots of weather in this country, but, but often it doesn't really... There are more people die falling out of bed than die from weather. Well, this year, it was a real exception in terms of everything you could think of in terms of the extreme of the of the weather we seem to have it this uh, this year i want to unpack more on that in just a moment but first give me the top three stories uh number three number well, two number, number one. one i call it the record heat under the dome and and really we had a a a, a dome of air like like a juggernaut of high pressure that sat over british columbia and alberta at the end of june and early july we broke records for the number of records we broke <laughs> um and it was just absolutely deadly. It was people were that insane heat where people were suffering. Uh, roads were, were breaking up and, uh, and the fruit was baking on vines and, and, uh, and trees. I mean, it was just absolutely uh, in an area where they don't have air conditioning. They don't need air yeah. conditioning. But it was almost as if you took, and now we can say here in the second coldest country in the world, Russia's number one, we now have temperatures warmer than in the United States outside of the desert southwest. Any temperature in Europe, never the warmest, has never been as warm as what we saw in Lytton, British Columbia, where we got up from 45, which is the national record back in 1937, to the new record, which is closer to 50 degrees. And then on the fourth day... Little it and burnt down. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the evidence was destroyed uh, with the terrible fires. So it was really in everything. It was almost as if Hollywood couldn't have produced an event like this, or or the the Bible has no 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 comparable story to what we saw in. Um, in British Columbia, uh, in the number one story. The number two story was, hey, stay with the same province. It was the flood of floods. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw those rains that come. It's the wet season in the fall. But this was ridiculous, where we had twice or more uh, rain than we normally would see. And then the, the thing is that the heat and the uh, drought and the fires in the spring, Kevin, they prepared the ground such those floods were even floodier. I mean, the, the soil... Is that, is that a word, David? David, is that a word, floodier? Can, can you say Pardon? floodier? I'm, I'm just questioning the word floodier. I like it. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Okay, good. I like it. So, so you and I have... Well, you've created it. I have verified it. Therefore, floodier is now a word. Well, let's put it into the, the, well, the dictionary. Sh- it may take a while to get accepted as the, the word of the year, but clearly, um, I mean, there's nothing There's nothing that would be more, I'm not embellishing it. I mean, I'm just, mm-hmm. I just run out of, uh, out of uh, the lexicon of, of weather misery words that uh, would describe that. And, and then the third one was Canada Dry, coast to coast. Unintentional. Mm-hmm. I mean, farmers were remembering it, but oh, it was like the 1961, 1988. Well, historians are liking it to the dirty 30s. I mean, you had places in British Columbia that didn't have a drop of rain in two months, and it was searing heat. Um, it was just absolutely, uh, it was too hot, too dry for too long. 
I mean, farmers wouldn't even. I mean, and then they thought the thing could get worse. Well, it couldn't. It, it, it couldn't get worse. Well, it got worse because then you had a horde of grasshoppers and gophers that came in and ate anything that was green. I mean, they're lucky to have any any crop at all in the in the prairies, and that's a billions of dollars damage uh, and lost opportunities. So you know, it, it really. And then I haven't even talked about the wildfires, uh, the the incredible smoke, and, and you take a place like Calgary. I, I just shocked. I mean, there's a place, a city where you can see the mountains on a clear day. You couldn't see across the street. They had you get twelve hours a year on average of smoke and haze. And I mean, the, the wild the wildfires, the wildfires in northwestern Ontario as well. Uh, you well, know, exactly. here here in Toronto, Toronto, like, like a campfire at times. Here in and Toronto, I mean, that's a thousand kilometers away. Yeah. My gosh, it was, you could tell by the skies in Montreal and Ottawa, Toronto, down in Windsor. I mean, it was, you could smell it, you could feel it, you could taste it, um, the smoke from for those fires. So it, it really, there was something that happened uh, a distance away, and yet the winds took it down and fumigated the city of Toronto, and, uh, and, and people knew it. They knew that the gray, milky white sky, it wasn't like the blue kind of uh, white, puffy cloud kind of sky. There was clearly some impurities in that air, and they were coming from home, uh, home-growing uh, fires in northwestern Ontario. Okay, so what about southern Ontario? What 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 was our what were our big stories? Well, I think in a way it was fortunate we we didn't make the list very much. I mean, I uh, we talk about uh, one of five. This story was the the heat waves, um, and we did have a number of days above. Uh, 40 in the Toronto GTA area. We typically would number of days above 30, uh, or sort of nights above uh, 20. That's a tropical night. Uh, that's lethal. That's deadly. And we had 14 of those suckers compared to what would be a four. So, so we did have, we had a, a year in which we had, um, you know, 27, 28 days above 30, which is a hot day in Canada. We normally would get 16 of those. So, so that was a year of, uh, of heat waves. Um, and of course, that smoke. We also had a number, again, it didn't make it to the top 10, but a number of uh, what we would call, you know, heavy rain events. And the other, and, and was sometimes there were more heavy doses of rain and a lot of flooding. We had a pollen explosion there in May. People who had asthma and and uh, respiratory uh, uh, sufferings, uh, they, they, it was a tough spring for them because all of the trees came on all at once and all of the pl- uh, grasses and the pollen was just an explosion, a, an apocalypse of, of explosion. And so, so that was a big issue. And I remember, I think also the, the good, and you know, I'm not a guy that covers uh, misery. I, I like to cover just weather that everybody's talking about. And the fall was gorgeous. I mean, we thought mm-hmm. people thought we were, well, the summer's over at Labor Day and now we're going to go into early, early winter. Well, we had October that was four degrees warmer than normal. And we still haven't had a, a taste of winter like weather. So so I think we've been blessed a lot in the GTA of of weather that was was actually pretty uh, pretty fair, pretty good and certainly a world of difference from other areas in Canada. All right, so very quickly wrapping up, where is the snow going to be in the GTHA, maybe even and beyond into ski country as well? Where is the snow going to be? Where won't it be for Christmas? 
Well, you know, I, I think, Kevin, we, we're still in a warm situation with the Great Lakes. And so there's the, always that threat. And some places in Ontario get much more snow locally grown from lake effect snowstorms. I'm thinking of Collingwood, the Barrie area up in the Muskoka area, where people go and enjoy the outdoors and the winter, winter scenes. But, um, so I think that's still going to be a threat right through until February. Maybe it'll be one that'll be, we'll see. Because typically when the ice comes, it cuts that source off. We still see some warm temperatures, sunny conditions. It's going to be a touch and go at Christmas. We see some cold weather coming uh, in the next uh, few days to begin to freeze the ground. But then we see a little bit of warm uh, period up prior to Christmas. So I think it's going to be touch and go. I'm going to say that we probably... uh, uh, we, we, we're owed one. Uh, we've had one for a, a while. And so my sense is I'm going to say that we will get the tw- two centimeters of snow on Christmas morning. But it's not something, if you don't like it, well, just let nature take its course. And what it giveth, it can also take it away. All right, Dave, thank you so much for this. Thank and you so much for your interest, Kevin. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, bye-bye now. Bye. Jim Lang next with how learning a second language can boost your brain health. This is a fascinating story of a teamwork between York University and Baycrest about aging and neuropsychology. And one of the geniuses behind it is the distinguished research professor from the Department of Psychology at York University, Dr. Ellen Bielostock. Doctor, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, It's a fascinating idea that studying a second language can benefit brain health. And when I read this and I read the title, I went, well, of course. Why didn't anyone think of this before? How did you come across this, that learning a second or multiple languages can help your brain? Well, for many years, for decades, we've been studying the effects of bilingualism on brains. And we have lots of evidence showing that people who are bilingual uh, improve their brains and their cognitive abilities in certain ways. So I would always be asked when I gave talks about this work, well, what about me? I'm old and I'm monolingual. Is it too late? And I didn't know. I thought that's a great question. Let's find out. Well, is it? I mean, I'm in my 50s. I'm trying to become more fluent in French. Am I too old? Am I? Is it okay for me to still be doing this? Well, the people in our study uh, were on average 70 years old, and they were monolingual, and they spent 16 weeks learning Spanish, and at the end of that time, they did better on our very targeted cognitive tasks. So what does that tell us, the average citizen, that A, it's never too late to learn a language, and B, if you do, it's good for your brain? Exactly. And I think it's mostly about the second. So, you know, you'll learn language. You're not going to become fluent. That's not the point. But the process of learning a language is good for your brain because, frankly, it's hard to do. And anything that's hard for your brain is good for your brain. So it keeps your brain active and stimulated. The nice thing about doing it by learning a language is that it's also useful and fun. So there's lots of things you can do to activate your brain, but you may not enjoy them as much as learning a language or have as much to show for it after as you do when you learn a language. And I think about this, Professor, and all of the immigrant Canadians who made this nation what it is today and came here and had to learn to become fluent in English as well as their own language. And I have some friends who are 
two, three, four languages. And, you know, thinking about the study, they have a real edge up and leg up on me when it comes to cognitive brain health. So that's exactly right. And and the thing that most people in North America don't understand is that multilingualism is perfectly normal in the world. And, and you know, there's some estimates that say there are more people who are bilingual or multilingual than there are people who are monolingual. But we don't, you know, we're kind of blinded in North America because English is everywhere. Now, during the pandemic, I went to my local library in Newmarket and got some, um, you know, CDs about learning French. And it was like, you'd listen and repeat it. Does it matter how you're trying to learn the other language, whether it's uh, audible or reading, or does it all help your brain? I think the main thing here, the important thing that led to these results is brain exercise. If you're trying to learn a language, you're using your brain in ways that keep it alert. And what happens is brains that are constantly used, constantly required to be doing hard things, become more resilient. They become more able to tolerate damage, for example. So we've shown in our research that bilingual older adults who have various diseases in their brain, neuropathology in their brain, don't show symptoms uh, at the same stage as monolinguals. They can tolerate a certain amount of distress in the brain and still function at a high level because their brains are more resilient. So all of these exercises lead to a resilient brain. Speaking with Dr. Ellen Bielestock, the Distinguished Research Professor from the Department of Psychology at York University, but a fantastic study she did with Baycrest about learning extra languages. And it's fascinating you bring this up, Doctor, because I think about how they always say that if you walk and exercise in deep into your 70s and 80s, it's good for your body. So it only makes sense that if you don't want your brain to atrophy like your muscles, that you use it. Exactly. It's that, it's that simple. Now, it's exactly I, what it is. I know people talk about um, doing puzzles, painting, word search. Does that all help as well as learning the other language? Right, it does help. But some of those some of those activities are pretty simple. So the more complex the activity is, the greater the benefit. And to be frank, learning a language at any time, but especially when you're older, this is really hard stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be using all your brain. You're going to need all of your attention and concentration. You're going to need your memory. You're going to need to learn new routines to say these new words. So you're you're using a lot of brain resources. The other activities you mentioned, they're okay, but they're simpler. So, you know, they can quickly become routine and maybe not so challenging for your brain. Well, Professor, did, did you end up learning Spanish in the study? Do you speak other languages? <laughs> I did not learn Spanish in this study. I wish I did. And um, I'm, I'm working on pieces of other languages. Uh, I wish I was doing better than I am. And, 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 and I'm listening to you say that and go, yeah, like I, I'm going to try to learn a little of this, a little of that. I know my wife has mm-hmm. some, like my mom's mom, um, she has Alzheimer's and she's reverting back to Dutch. So she ends up speaking her native Dutch language. So my wife works a lot and listening to Dutch CDs so she can com- communicate with her mother when she sees her in her long-term care home. And I guess that's part of it as well. Sometimes you revert back to your original language. 
this is this is what is reported that um, the languages you learned later in life become more difficult to retrieve as memory becomes more impaired. And so this is a common uh, finding. But again, I'll, I'll just remind you that there are now studies in uh, many, many different countries confirming our original finding that Alzheimer's disease shows its symptoms later in bilinguals and in monolinguals. So although it's tragic when anybody uh, succumbs to the disease, I think it's likely the case that your mother-in-law may have had it for a while without you knowing because she was able to function oh, at normal levels. That's fascinating. Get more details at yorku.ca, York University, Dr. Ellen Bielostock. A fascinating study, and now it makes me want to go out and learn French and Spanish and other languages to help my brain because it's something I'm definitely going to put on my to-do list for the future. Thank you so much for taking the time and a brilliant study and a really enlightening study for all of us. Thank you, doctor. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. helping our community go places. That is their slogan, their mission, their purpose. Pink Cars has been instrumental in getting more than 10,000 York Region seniors to their vaccination appointments over the past many months. Now Pink Cars is the driving force behind helping our golden girls and guys receive their booster shots. Pink Cars is the brainchild of Shanta Sunder Asen. She is our guest now on the feed. Welcome to the show, Shanta. It's great to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. So tell me about Pink Cars. What is the concept and where did you come up with this idea? Well, a couple of days before the onslaught of the vaccine started back in March, I started to get a few frantic phone calls from some seniors that I knew. They were a bit concerned as to how to book um, a vaccination appointment. Many of them didn't have computers. They didn't have the wherewithal to go online. They didn't know if there was a hotline number. Many of them didn't drive. They were really fearful of getting into a taxi because they'd been kept at, in home for nearly over a year, really, and they were petrified of getting into a stranger's car. They weren't sure how they were going to get to and from their vaccine. And so I decided that I really needed to do something to help them to ease anxiety and to really help them get the protection that they've been needing for well over a year. And that's where I came up with the concept of trying to help seniors book their appointments and also to try and help get those that needed a ride to and from their appointments um, as quickly as possible. So great for the seniors and makes them comfortable, gets them where they need to go. And 10,000 plus seniors you have helped over the many months since uh, all of this began. The other part of this equation, the volunteers, what kinds of people have that compassion and that desire to help? You know, when COVID started, there were so many people that firstly lost jobs um, and many that were stuck at home with nothing to do and were really going a little bit stir crazy. 
And that really brought out the compassion in so many people. They started to hear about many people losing their lives, especially seniors in long-term care homes. And that got so many people reaching out to me when they heard what I had started to ask how they could help and that they were so desperate to do so in any possible way. And that's really how all the volunteerism started. And today we have been inundated with many drivers, although we are still looking for a few more um, to step up and try and help us for the booster shot. And that's what we're talking about today, the booster shot and getting seniors to that booster shot. So tell me about the, the lay of the land now. Things are a little bit different. Uh, maybe the volunteers are not double vaccinated. Uh, maybe seniors are a little bit concerned about riding with someone who hasn't had his or her booster shot. How does that all work now today? Yeah, so things are evolving very rapidly and on a daily basis. Most of our volunteers are over 50, and um, a lot of them will be getting their booster shots within the next month. A few have already had their boosters, and those are the only ones that we're actually asking to go out on the road at the moment. So if anybody out there would love to drive for us anywhere within York region and has had their booster shot, we'd be delighted to hear from them. But I do foresee the future weeks, in the future weeks that we will have a lot more drivers on the road because a lot more people will have had their shots. And I know that it is a challenge at this point booking a booster shot appointment. Does that in any way impede the the flow of pink cars? Well, for the first time since um, the vaccine rollout started, we are actually feeling a little bit strangled um, in the sense that there aren't any many appointments available at the moment. We're hoping that in the next couple of weeks, things will change. A lot of the pharmacies are offering booster shots, but unfortunately, pink cars cannot book appointments at the pharmacies. And so what we're telling a lot of the seniors that reach out to us is that their best bet and their first point of call should be to reach out to their local pharmacy because they may be able to even walk there, and that might be their quickest option. However, if they're finding that still a struggle, then they should reach out to us, and we will do what we can to help book them an appointment as close as possible through the region website. Wow, so hands on the wheel at Pink Cars, but also a helping hand, helping seniors with all of the aspects of getting vaccinations and and now the third shot, the booster. So can you walk me through what happens? So a senior gets in touch with you and says uh, that they've got an appointment or you've helped them get an appointment. What happens then? To explain to me, pick up where they sit. Are they masked in the vehicle? Does the the volunteer driver wait while the, the shot is taking place? How does that work? Absolutely. So some, some seniors are able to book themselves an appointment, but then they're struggling to get a ride. Then they can reach out to us either by email. We have a very simple booking system or by telephone. And we will arrange um, for a volunteer driver uh, to match up with in their location and help them get to and from their appointment. All our drivers, as I say, are fully vaccinated. They are masked. All their all our cars are completely sterilized. They will drive them to their appointment. If necessary, they will help them in and out. If not, they will wait for them and drive them straight home after their appointment. So it's a complete turnaround service. It's free of charge. It's done out of love. 
Mm-hmm. And and we make sure that all our seniors are taken very good care of. Oh, that's beautiful, Shanta. All right. How can we help? How can the community help? What kind of support do you need, Shanta, at Pink Cars? Well, right now, what we are looking for are a few extra drivers. So if anybody out there has had their booster shot, if they have got a police check, because that's a, another criteria, um, if not, we can help you get one then do reach out to us at pinkcars.ca and someone, one of our volunteers will reach out and explain what the process is. You are marvelous and what a great idea. And thank you for all of your hard work and the volunteers as well. And you are just making life for seniors just that much better. Thank you, Shanta. Thank you so much for having me and helping spread the good word. After the break, the Stones exhibit comes to Ontario. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. So if you're a Stones fan, you may want to start it up and head to Kitchener. Christina Lavecchia with the Canadian premiere of Unzipped. Europe and the United States, Unzipped, an exhibition dedicated to celebrating the Rolling Stones' artistic collaborations in music, art, design, fashion, and film, has made its way to Canada. The museum, which is located in downtown Kitchener, Ontario, is hosting the one-of-its-kind show. Exhibit-goers can expect to see more than 300 original objects from the iconic rock band's personal collection, including instruments, personal diaries, and costumes, and can experience an immersive reconstruction of their Chelsea flat Edith Grove, just to name one of many attractions. To learn more about Unzipped, the museum's CEO, David Marskell, joins me. Hi, David. Welcome to the feed. Hi, Christina. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. The museum is the only Canadian stop Unzipped will be making. What is it about the stones and Unzipped that attracted the museum to host the exhibition? Uh, The museum is a pretty interesting place for those who don't know about it. We have our roots as a children's museum and going back about 20 years. and, And that didn't really meet expectations. And when I was brought on, I knew I had to expand it demographically, and I knew with my marketing experience, I could also expand it in terms of geography and bring people to the community. And so um, without a collection, uh, we're on our feet swinging and punching over our weight. And I thought that um, the global brand of the Rolling Stones, bringing them to our community, would be newsworthy if we could land it and would be incredible for this community to be able to enjoy it and not have to go to a big city like Toronto. And different industries have been hard hit because of the pandemic, tourism and the arts included. What type of impact are you hoping Unzipped will have not only on the local community, but also the province as a whole? I, I believe with all my heart, and I'm, I'm starting to see the evidence in our, in our ticket sales and listening to our partners. There's no question in my mind that we are going to help reboot the local economy specifically the hospitality sector. We have, uh, of all the tickets we've sold, 
we're holding at a solid 60% are from outside the region. So people are coming into our community and we've created what we call the festival strategy to give them a reason to stay overnight or even over two nights. We have the Ronnie Wood Art Exhibition in Waterloo. We have the um, Fashion History Museum has put on a show called Frock On. We have a film series at the Princess Cinema. There's just so many things that people want to immerse themselves in the Rolling Stones and kind of a snapshot of pop culture for the last 60 years. So I think it's going to have a huge impact locally and for southwestern Ontario for sure. And I was reading uh, one of the museum's latest partnerships is with a Canadian rock symphony group called Jeans and Classics. And on January 6th, they are set to perform the Stones hits at uh, Centre in the Square as part of other activities scheduled to take place during the exhibition. Can you tell us more about that partnership? Yeah, I I mean, it's one of the very first that came to mind for us when we reached out to them. We've been planning this for over two and a half years. And um, as we plan at at our organization, my great young team come up with a variety of activities and and partnerships and so on. And we we throw it all up in the air and see what lands over the next period of time before we actually open. And this was one of the first ones. Um, Jeans and Classics are great. They come out of London, Ontario. They do cover uh, music for various bands and play full albums and that type of thing. And they're they're well-known. They've been at the center of the square for for decades, I believe. And um, so we reached out to them and said, can you get this on your calendar and and do an evening with the Rolling Stones? And they were very quick to say yes. And um, they partnered with Center in the Square to make that happen. So again, it's just another reason to come to Kitchener-Waterloo and the region of Waterloo and stay overnight. You can catch that recreation of the Rolling Stones. You can see the show, maybe see one of the other events we've got, enjoy our restaurants and bars and so on. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to offer. And are there similar partnerships with other local artists as well? Yeah, we're, we're showcasing um, five or six local artists in terms of at sort of the VIP opening. We had, two local live bands playing. We have the Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony playing. We've got several graphic designers, uh, artists who've created some posters. We have a baker who's created the iconic Rolling Stones tongue as a cookie. We have glass blowers that have created works from the Ronnie Wood artwork um, or one of his particular paintings. They were inspired by that. And so um, there's, we're doing our best to do that. And we also, we want to host the townships and the local artists over the period of time that we have to have their artists and so on on display at the museum at at no cost to them and they can keep all of the proceeds from selling their work so to me it's about bringing as many tourists here collaboration and sharing the audience let's talk about the exhibit experience what can listeners expect can you give us a little walkthrough of the exhibition yeah, again, it, it, it's very much about the Rolling Stones and celebrating the Rolling Stones. And if you're a Stones fan, you will be in heaven to go through and see personal artifacts. There's over 300 artifacts, things that you would never be able to see. They're handwritten songs and lyrics that created, guitar collections, the costumes that they wore on stage or wear on stage. These costumes are made by Prada and Dior and like global fashion designers. There's Charlie Watts' drum kit from 1965, Warhol works. Uh, he created the album cover of Sticky Fingers. Um, how they create their stages, these enormous stages and so on. So it's a very comprehensive show. 
it's a snapshot of the last 60 years uh, as a backdrop to that uh, in terms of what happened back then with the Vietnam War and Women's Lib and so on and, and how that's come out in their lyrics and their album covers, artwork and so on. So it's, it's, um, people have to leave an hour and a half or more to see this to really truly experience this. One of the attractions I was mentioning at the top of the interview is the reconstruction of the Stones' Chelsea flat, Edith Grove. Were the Stones involved in those creations or any aspect of the exhibition? Um, the Rolling Stones created the entire exhibition. They curated it. It's their show by them for us, for Stones fans. And um, Edith Grove is early in the show. This is over four floors in our building. And it's the third gallery we go to. And it's a recreation that they've created of where they stayed back in the early 60s in London, in Edith Grove. And um, it reminds me a lot of my son's bedroom when they were 14. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty uh, horrendous, to quote Keith Richards. Uh, and it's been created by them, so it's very close to what it looked like and, and they experienced back, uh, back then. I have to ask for the Stones fans, any chance they might drop in? Well, never say never. They have dropped in. There's, this exhibition has been to about nine or ten cities globally in London and New York and Sydney and Tokyo and, oh my God, Kitchener. And they have shown up at other, at, in other cities. And for those who know me personally, they know I'm trying and trying to get at least one of them to show up. But at this point, no guarantees, no plans, but I'm trying. But there's a chance. So it's, it's good. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, the museum is hosting Unzipped until the end of February 2022. How can listeners purchase their tickets? It is now open. It runs through February 27th, as you say. And it's quite simply, themuseum.ca. And you can purchase your tickets there. And if you choose to go to the Ronnie Wood Art Exhibition, you can buy a combo ticket. But it's all there. The merchandise store is awesome. Uh, there's a Voodoo Lounge to have a beverage if you're interested. And uh, we just hope people come and celebrate in downtown Kitchener in the region of Waterloo. And in terms of um, the tickets need to be pre-purchased or can they be bought at the door as well? You, you do need to buy them in advance. We're very conscious of COVID. So we want to monitor and, and sort of manage how many people are in the building at, at one time, any given time. So we are not going to 100% capacity. We're actually at about 65 or 70%. Um, and so people will choose the date and a window of two hours that they want to come through. So if you and I were going, we could go at 10 and the ticket's valid to get in until noon. You can take as much time once you're in or at noon or at two or at four and so on. And it's open 10 to 10 every day. And uh, ticket sales are brisk. So if people do want to buy them for Christmas or gifts or a specific date, I do encourage them to go to the museum.ca. How much are the tickets per person? Um, tickets, your best value is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then uh, ticket pricing goes up uh, sort of premium, if you will, on, on uh, Thursday through the weekend. It's roughly $28 plus taxes and, and fees and so on on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and about $38 going into the weekend. And um, to your point of, of protocol, it's all at the museum.ca, frequently asked questions. David Marskell, CEO of the museum, thank you for taking the time to speak with me and letting our listeners in on a way that we could all enjoy music and the arts again in the middle of a pandemic. Thank you, Christina. Hope to see you and all of your listeners at the museum in downtown Kitchener. Hey, hey, hey. 
If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.